Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This week has been a rough one. If you've listened to this week's follow-up episode or follow me on social media, you know that after producing last week's episode, I continued to analyze the surveillance video, and I'm just not feeling as confident about my findings as I was last week. I'm seeing some reflections that I didn't notice before, and I think that what first appeared to be a car approaching from the left and pulling into the Melgar's driveway might actually be a car approaching from the right with its lights off and passing by to the left. Understanding that I've maxed out, and then some, my photogrammetry skills, I've reached out for help. As I'm writing this episode, photogrammetry expert Grant Fredericks is reviewing the surveillance footage. Since he has agreed to weigh in with his professional opinion, I'm going to default to his findings. You may remember Mr. Fredericks from Season 4. He's the photogrammetry expert that worked on the George Powell case. No, I'm a forensic video analyst, so I examine uh, both video and audio information recorded to digital video recorders for all sorts of different kinds of cases, whether that recorder is attached to a police officer in a body-worn video or whether it's at a bank or a taxi cab or, in this case, a convenience store. So I'll uh, examine video evidence uh, and assist the judge or jury, the trier of fact, to accurately interpret that information. And that includes things like speed estimation, uh, height analysis, and uh, photographic video comparison and a number of other techniques that deal with the examination of video evidence. Grant is well-respected in his field, and I believe that he will be able to bring us closer to drawing any conclusions from the Espen surveillance footage. In the meantime, we're going to circle back to Cinead Gonzalez and Oscar Garcia. About a month ago, I wrote to Mr. Garcia regarding what appears to be a Brady violation in his case, and I also wanted to know a little bit about Cinead. This week, I not only received my open records request back from Harris County on the cases, but I also received a letter back from Oscar Garcia. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. 
Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. In my letter from Oscar, he also included a letter that he had written to Judge Catherine Evans. In the letter, he's asking the judge to consider writing a letter to the parole board. Garcia is claiming that he's innocent in the Kingwood home invasion and that Sinead Gonzalez framed him. Now, I'm not here to say one way or the other if Oscar Garcia is innocent or guilty, but by dissecting this case file, we can do a few things. Number one, we can get some insight into how home invaders operate, even if the Kingwood case is not related to the Melgar case. We can examine further similarities of the 2009 home invasion that Oscar was arrested for, the 2012 Kingwood home invasion, and Jim Melgar's murder. And lastly, we can see if there are any leads that could be generated from these documents. I'm going to start by reading to you an excerpt from Oscar's letter to Judge Evans. Primarily, Garcia is proclaiming his innocence and explaining that his conviction was the result of some bad lawyering on the part of his court-appointed attorney. The first thing that I noticed in the second paragraph is a lead that can be explored. From the letter. The lack of evidence and positive identification by a photo lineup is confusing and questionable to who identified me as the perpetrator. I would like to point out the lack of defense on my behalf. My attorney never contacted any of the witnesses I provided for him and also never looked for evidence to help me in my case. I was able to give him two witnesses of two women that were also friends of my co-defendant. Siniad was his co-defendant. That could have testified that I was not involved in the robbery and could have provided testimony as to why my co-defendant said I was a part of the perpetrators. They also could have helped in testifying who was really responsible for the acts and stated their whereabouts. Unfortunately, my attorney did not contact them. He also at no time ever visited me about my case while I was in county jail and not once went himself or sent anyone from his firm to investigate my case. He never went personally to ask questions. He would only speak to my mother over the phone for her to relay messages back to me. I had also given him information on the case, and he told me not to speak of it. I believe the information could have helped me in my case to put me in the clear of a conviction for a robbery with a deadly weapon. So this is important. Oscar says that there are two women that are mutual friends of him and Siniad. These women, according to Garcia, know why Siniad implicated Oscar. They know Oscar is innocent, and more importantly, they know who actually did break into the Kingwood home and terrorize Isabelle and her family. And this does a couple of things for us. Number one, I've spoken to Isabelle. She is still frustrated that the men who attacked her were never caught. She wants justice for her family, and allegedly Oscar knows two women who can make that happen. Secondly, if it was the same group of people that broke into the Kingwood home, that broke into the Melgars and murdered Jim, these two women may actually know who all was involved. Apparently, there was also a third male witness that knows something. He was never contacted either. And then we have Oscar's claim that he gave his lawyer information about the case, and the lawyer told him, quote, not to speak of it, end quote. Now, that seems a bit tinfoil hatty, but after a quick look at the case file, it may actually be true. There is nothing ordinary about either the 2009 home invasion or the 2012 Kingwood home invasion. Let's start with the home invasion that occurred on May 3rd, 2009. 
This was the case where Oscar Garcia was arrested after he was caught driving away from the neighborhood in a vehicle that had been spotted near the scene of the robbery. He had his license plate partially covered with a rag, and inside his vehicle, the police found a pair of gloves and a mask similar to the ones worn by the home invaders. The home invasion occurred at about 10 p.m. The sun set in Houston that night at 8 p.m. The homeowners on Remington Heights Drive were having a barbecue with some friends when a group of what they described as armed teenagers ran down the street and forced them into the house. Let me read a witness statement to you from supplement number four of the police report. At 0237 hours, I interviewed English-speaking complainant Jose. A brief synopsis of the interview follows. Jose advised that he was outside at his neighbor's home for a barbecue when four to five males approached with guns and told everyone to go inside. Jose stated that once they went inside, the males locked the doors and tied his hands up behind him. Jose advised that the males put a gun to his head and repeatedly asked where the money was. Jose stated that all the males had handguns. Jose advised that he did not look at the males but did notice the males had Central American accents. Jose stated that all of the males were talking on radios like Nextel. Jose advised that one of the males said into the radio, quote, We can't find the money, should we kill one? End quote. Jose stated that a male voice responded saying, quote, No, calm down, stay cool. End quote. Jose advised that he was laying on the floor face down with his hands tied behind his back. Jose stated that he was too scared to remember what the suspects were wearing other than they were wearing tennis shoes. And next, we have another interview with another victim. At 0241 hours, I interviewed English-speaking witness Jenny. A brief synopsis of the interview follows. Jenny advised that she was outside at her neighbor's home at approximately 9.30 p.m. when she heard someone scream. Jenny stated that she then saw two people with guns and dark masks on their faces walking up from the street. Jenny advised that she ran into the house through the garage and locked the door. Jenny stated that she ran to an upstairs bedroom, climbed out of a window, and jumped a fence. Jenny advised that she ran to her home but was unable to get in, so she went inside another neighbor's home and called the police. Jenny advised that she observed a large black SUV, possibly an explorer or expedition, parked on the street near the neighbor's home that she did not recognize. This scene was absolute chaos. Jose was just relaxing at a barbecue, and seconds later he was forced into the house at gunpoint and then tied up. If it weren't for Jenny, this scene very likely could have ended much more tragically. She fled into the house to get away from the armed men, climbed out of a window in the back, jumped a fence, and got to a safe place to call 911. She is the first person to identify the black SUV that was parked out in front of the victim's house. The next interview took place 25 minutes later. This is when Deputy Garcia the same Deputy Garcia that interviewed all of the Spanish-speaking witnesses in the Melgar case, translated as Oscar Garcia was interviewed. At 0306 hours, with the assistance of Deputy Jay Garcia, I interviewed Oscar Garcia, a Spanish speaker. Deputy Garcia read Oscar Garcia his statutory warnings in Spanish. Oscar Garcia indicated that he understood his rights. A brief synopsis of the interview translated by Deputy Garcia follows. Oscar Garcia advised that he purchased cars from auctions and then owner finances these vehicles. Oscar stated that he had financed a 2001 white Mitsubishi Galant for a man named Danny and this male was behind on payments. Oscar advised that he was in the neighborhood because he had received information earlier this day that Danny lived in the same neighborhood as the complainant. Oscar stated that he was driving around the neighborhood slowly looking for his car. Oscar advised that he had stopped on the side of the road to use his phone. 
Oscar stated that while he was stopped, he observed four or five Hispanic males, approximately 25 to 30 years old, get out of a white Ford Taurus on the same street. Oscar advised that the males were all dressed in black and he thought they were going to the house with a party, so he didn't think anything of it. Oscar stated that he was alone in his vehicle and that he was not involved in the robbery. Now, this is where things get a little confusing. All of the men from inside the house fled through the backyard when the police arrived. They jumped a fence into a construction site. Shortly thereafter, police were called to a nearby neighborhood, accessible from the construction site, because a group of young Hispanic men were seen trying to break into vacant houses. Police responded and had to chase the men through the neighborhood. Some were hiding in houses, and others ran. One of them was even bitten by the canine unit. Once they were all taken into custody, they were taken back to the home invasion crime scene. There, the victims identified them as the home invaders and Oscar Garcia as the man driving the black SUV. Although that was no surprise, since Garcia had admitted that he was in the neighborhood when the crime occurred. It's not clear why in the report, but it does not appear that the men captured in the other neighborhood and ID'd by the victims were ever charged in this case, other than for evading arrest. Now let's get back to the offense report. Probably the most disturbing witness account comes from a woman named Lucero. From the report. At 0421 hours, I interviewed Spanish-speaking complainant Lucero with Deputy Jay Garcia translating. A brief synopsis of the interview follows. Lucero stated that she was sitting inside her vehicle in the driveway at Maria's home when five males walked up. Lucero advised that one of the males pulled a mask over his face. She stated that she observed a six male, who she described as young, wearing a white shirt and blue jeans, exit a black SUV from the rear passenger door on the driver's side of the vehicle. She advised that she saw two pistols and possibly one long gun. Lucero advised that she yelled to Maria, grabbed her baby, and ran to the house next door to Maria and banged on the door and tried to get in. She stated that the males went inside Maria's house and then one came back out, the one wearing gray pants. Lucero advised that the male told her to calm down or he was going to shoot her baby. She stated that the male did not have his face covered, but then pulled the mask down over his face and made her go into Maria's garage. Lucero advised that the male asked her if she lived in Maria's house and she said no. She stated that the male told her he wanted money. She advised that all of the male victims were lying on the garage floor with their hands tied behind their backs. Lucero advised that this male had been wearing a black shirt, but he took it off. She stated that he was wearing a white wife-beater shirt underneath and gray pants. Lucero stated that all of the males were speaking Spanish, but the one in the gray pants told her to shut up in English, and he spoke very good English. Lucero advised that all the males were young, but one appeared to be in charge. She stated that this male put a gun to the males' heads and told them that he would kill them if they did not give him money. She advised that this male also said that they would have their way with the women. Lucero stated that this male was talking on the radio to another male. Lucero advised that the male informed them that they had someone watching outside. She stated that the male asked the male on the radio if he should kill one of them, and the male voice said no, just beat them up a little bit so they will talk. Lucero advised that the suspects made comments that this was the wrong house because there was supposed to be a safe behind the TV. Lucero stated that she heard a radio transmission stating that the police were coming. She advised that the males ran out the back of the house towards the fence. She stated that she ran outside in the front and saw the face of the driver of the black SUV at that time. Lucero advised that the SUV drove off as they were running out of the house and screaming for help. 
This is disgusting. One of the home invaders put a gun to a baby's head and threatened to kill it if the mother didn't comply. They threatened to beat victims and, quote, have their way with the women. One thing that is noted later in the report is that while all of the victims confirmed that the home invaders were communicating with someone outside via radio or Nextel walkie-talkie, presumably this was Oscar serving as lookout. But there was no walkie-talkie or Nextel phone found in his vehicle. He did have a cell phone, and the police sent it off for forensic analysis, but there's nothing in the report to indicate what they found. But also noteworthy is the fact that Lucero saw one of the home invaders exit from Oscar's car. So it would seem pretty cut and dry that Oscar Garcia was involved, and that there also may have been another vehicle looking out at another location, which is also confirmed by the fact that someone notified the robbers that the police were coming when Oscar was still in the neighborhood, and he was gone by the time the police arrived. The thing that really caught my attention here was the mention of the safe. The men that were assaulting the victims inside were telling the man on the other end of the walkie-talkie that they must have the wrong house because there was supposed to be a safe behind the TV. So obviously, any mention of a safe is significant. The home invaders in Kingwood were looking for a safe, and Jim was killed four feet from his safe, and there were bloody finger swipes on the back of the safe handle. But what got my attention is something even more concerning. The men said that there was supposed to be a TV behind the safe. How would they know that? Unless someone had been in the house and tipped them off. This has me wondering again about the cleaning lady at the Melgar's house. In this 2009 case, the home invaders went to the wrong house, but they were in the neighborhood because someone told them there was a house with a safe behind the TV. Now back to the report. At 0545 hours, I interviewed English-speaking complainant Mrs. Nunez. A brief synopsis of the interview follows. Miss Nunez advised that she was at the neighbor's house when she heard someone screaming, Maria. Miss Nunez stated that she observed males with black things in their hands and all over their faces, so she started running. Miss Nunez advised that she ran into the house, up the stairs, and hid in a closet. Miss Nunez stated that one of the suspects found her in the closet. She advised that the male put a gun to her head and grabbed her by the arm and made her go downstairs. She described this male as possibly five foot tall. Miss Nunez advised that his face was covered. She stated that when she came downstairs, everyone was on the floor. Miss Nunez advised that the suspects had her next to Maria and they kept asking for money. She stated that she hid her face and prayed while the suspects kept asking for money and stating that they were going to kill someone. Ms. Nunez advised that when Maria told the suspect that this was her house, she heard a sound that sounded like it was made with a foot. She stated that the suspects were talking on radios and someone on the radio told them that the police were coming. Ms. Nunez stated that she was scared and did not want to look at anyone. She advised that all she saw was dark clothes. She stated that she did see that there was a male in the dark vehicle because the window was down and he looked at her and her neighbors when they went out of the house. Now, remember back to what Jim Clementi said when I asked him why someone would rob a house when people were home as opposed to when the house was vacant. What we're seeing here is exactly what he described. The burglars could have broken into this house when no one was there. They waited until people were home so that they could use people as leverage and have the homeowners direct them to what they're looking for, like the combination to the safe. Not to belabor the point, 
But I think that we can all agree at this point that the idea of someone breaking into a house when people are home does in fact make perfect sense. Next, we hear from the homeowner, Maria's brother. At 0723, I interviewed Spanish-speaking complainant Julio, the brother of the homeowner, Maria. Deputy Leal translated during this interview. A brief synopsis of the interview follows. Julio advised that he is currently staying with his sister and was outside with some other neighbors when one of the neighbors went to her vehicle and yelled out Maria. Julio stated that he saw some guys walking down the road with pistols. He advised that he ran and hid behind a truck until one of the males put a pistol to his head. Julio stated that they were forced to go inside. He advised that the door was locked so one of the suspects kicked the door open. He stated that the suspects hit him in the head with a closed fist, threw him to the floor, and tied his hands with electrical cords. Julio advised that the suspect pointed a pistol to his sister's head, pulled her hair, and one of them kicked her in the face. Julio stated that the suspects thought there was money in the TV and they wanted to take the TV apart. Julio advised that the suspects were talking on radios with someone that told them that the police were coming, so they ran out the patio to the back. He stated that the suspects jumped the fence and went in the direction of the concrete company in the back. Julio advised that he went out the front of the house and a black SUV took off. He stated that a police car drove up and he asked the police officer to follow the SUV. Julio advised that the male that pointed the pistol to his head was wearing blue plaid shorts, white tennis shoes, and a white shirt. Julio stated that he saw this male in the ambulance. Now, for reference sake, the person in the ambulance was the one that got bit by the canine unit in the other neighborhood. Julio advised that the male was scratched up, so he thinks he must have gotten scratched when he went over the fence. A fist to the head, and then tied up with an electrical cord. Sound familiar? Jim Melgar has what appears to be bruising from a fist to the back of the head, and his ankles were tied up with a phone cord. Lastly, we hear from the homeowner, Maria. At 0738 hours, I interviewed Spanish-speaking complainant Maria with Deputy Leal translating. A brief synopsis of the interview follows. Maria advised that they were outside by the garage when her friend yelled her name. Maria stated that she saw six teenagers running to her house with pistols. She advised that the suspects pointed guns at them and took them inside the house. She stated that the males threw them to the floor and were asking for money. She advised that they were told not to look up and asked about a safety box. Maria stated that the suspects were talking to someone on a radio and stating that this was not the right house. She advised that the suspect wearing shorts and white tennis shoes kicked her in the face. Maria advised that they told the suspects that the police were going to come and they said they did not care because they had the whole neighborhood being watched. She stated that when the suspects left, they went out front and saw the black expedition. Maria advised that the driver rolled down the window and then drove off. She stated that the suspects were all young and acted as though they were very mad. Maria stated that everything happened so fast. After the interview with Maria, the detective in charge interviewed Oscar a second time. He denied any involvement in the crime and denied that anyone was with him in the car. At this point, Garcia and all of the other suspects have been positively ID'd by the victims, and then we see this in the report. I do not feel comfortable with the identifications made by the complaints at this time. I was not present at the time the identifications were made, 
and due to the non-descriptive clothing worn by the suspects in the home invasion and the suspects in the vacant residence, I'm not certain that identifications made weren't based more on clothing versus actual identity. I contacted the district attorney's office and spoke with ADA Gordon, who advised that further investigation would be needed before we could charge Oscar Garcia. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Garcia was later arrested and charged with aggravated robbery after another witness identified him as the driver of the SUV in the neighborhood and stated that one of the home invaders did exit from his vehicle. But here's where things get weird. Nearly two years go by as Oscar is awaiting trial. During that time, DNA testing was conducted on several items from inside his truck and at the crime scene. The last document in the state's file says that Oscar's DNA was found on a brown glove. And then, nothing. In the district clerk's documents, we see that charges were dismissed on Valentine's Day in 2011. As I've mentioned before, under Reason for Dismissal, there's just a note that says, See State's File. That's the whole reason I wanted the file to begin with. But the State's File ends with the DNA testing results. Not a single document about the charges being dropped. I even called the man in the DA's office who handles my request to ask about it. And on that note, I want to publicly thank Mr. Brian Rose for working his ass off to get these records out. He emailed me this production on Saturday. I have to believe that he was one of only a few people working in that office over the weekend. But anyway, I called Brian to see if there was privileged information in that file that had to be withheld. He confirmed that he didn't withhold anything to do with the dismissal, only the standard redactions. The rest of the case file is just... missing. And we found the same thing in the 2012 Kingwood Home Invasion file. Let me quickly recap for you what we already knew about the Kingwood Home Invasion prior to receiving this open records request. We know that the home invaders were waiting outside the house when the husband arrived home. It was around 1 a.m., and they lived on a street nearly identical to the Melgars. A short street in a nice neighborhood with a cul-de-sac at the end. The offenders forced the husband into the house and held the family at gunpoint as they tied him up with his own necktie and an extension cord. The rest of the family was tied up with items from their own home. The perpetrators were insisting there was a safe and spent two hours going through the house only to steal small electronics like video game systems and iPads as well as some jewelry. There was a woman on a walkie-talkie calling the shots, who eventually entered the house at the very end of the incident. 
All of the stolen items were placed in backpacks and laundry baskets belonging to the victims and placed by the front door until they made their escape. Once they left, the husband untied himself and ran outside in time to see a dark SUV and a dark-colored BMW leave the house. Neither of the two vehicles were in the driveway or in sight when he arrived home. The family then tracked a stolen iPad, chased Inead Gonzalez down, ran her off the road, and held her until the police arrived. According to the clerk's documents, Sinead claimed that she was simply at the scene to give Oscar Garcia a ride, and that he placed the iPad, along with several other stolen items, into her car. She seems to have entered into a plea agreement in exchange for her testimony against Oscar. She was sentenced to five years in prison and was slated for deportation to Colombia. Oscar then spent nearly two years awaiting his trial and then ultimately entered into a plea deal himself for eight years in prison just days before the trial was supposed to take place. At that time, Sinead had been transported back to Harris County from prison to testify against Oscar. The Kingwood victim, who I've been calling Isabel, told me that she and her husband both looked at a photo lineup and both picked out a man that they believed was involved. She said that the police officer that showed her the lineup told them that they had, quote, picked the wrong guy. Then their 13-year-old son went into a room alone with the officer and identified Oscar as one of the masked home invaders. The state did not disclose to the defense that both parents had identified another person. This was the reason that I reached out to Oscar to begin with. Hiding the fact that the two adult victims identified someone else sounds an awful lot like a Brady violation. And now I've reviewed the state's file on the Kingwood home invasion, and this case has more twists and turns than I ever expected. In the follow-up summary in the police report, we find out that after Sinead and the suspects fled the scene, they actually returned. It's terrifying to think about the reason that they may have wanted to return to a house that had already been robbed, with the victims all tied up inside. I'm just going to read you two paragraphs from this summary. Once the suspects realized that the family were being truthful about their not being a safe in money, they then left the house with numerous items belonging to the family. The husband was able to free himself and saw the suspects as they left in what appeared to be a black Chevy Equinox and a dark-colored BMW. The husband then ran to a neighbor's house and began to knock on their door, at which time he observed the BMW come back to the location and saw a female driving, later identified as Sinead Gonzalez, along with some of the suspects in the vehicle with her. The husband stated that when the suspects realized that he had untied himself, they quickly left the location. In this file, we also get a little more information about how Isabel's husband was able to hold Sinead on the side of the road. That's a question that a lot of listeners had when I first released this info. After the home invaders left, the entire family ended up running to the neighbor's house and called 911. This is when Isabel's husband saw Sinead returning to the scene. At that time, he got onto the neighbor's computer and loaded up the Find My Phone website. Immediately, they could see the stolen iPad was moving down the road and not too far away. The husband and the neighbor jumped in their car with two guns and took off in pursuit of the vehicle. The neighbor on his phone while his wife updated them on Sinead's location. When they finally caught up to her BMW, the two got out of the car, guns drawn, and forced her to stay on the side of the road until the police arrived. While they waited for police, they found several of the stolen items in her car. And that's not all. From the report. Mr. Hernandez stated that he was on the phone with his wife tracking via their home computer the stolen iPad. 
he stated that as his wife was giving him the location of the stolen iPad, the complainant recognized the suspect vehicle. He stated that they were able to get the vehicle stopped and detain the listed suspect. He stated that before the police could arrive, they looked in the trunk and cabin of the suspect vehicle and found the listed PlayStation 3, iPhone, stun gun, iPad, PSP, and pistol. Complainant stated that he recognized the suspect vehicle by the taillights and wheels on the car. He stated that the listed suspect is the same person he saw driving the getaway car from in front of his house. He stated that he was positive it was the same vehicle and the same driver. He stated that as they were waiting for the police to arrive, the listed suspect received a text message on her phone telling her to check the news for anything to come up. I looked in the suspect's call log and found the same number that she received a text message from telling her to check the news. The phone number is a cricket number. In the suspect's call log, it shows that number under the name, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, so I'm going to say Yasistas. It's spelled, all one word, Y-O-S-S-I-S-T-A-S. It kind of looks like Yo-Sistas, but with too many S's. The contact, Yasistas, showed to have called the listed suspect three times around 3 a.m. The call times were 2.49 for 14 seconds, 2.52 for 5 seconds, and 2.54 for 18 seconds. The suspect's phone also shows the suspect calling that number at 5.21 for 0 seconds and 5.22 for 1 minute and 34 seconds. This was the strongest lead that the police had to track down the other offenders, Siniad's phone. They later obtained a warrant for the subscriber information on Yasista's phone number, but it wasn't any help. The phone was registered under the name Anonymous Lee, with a California address. From the report, Subscriber name? Anonymous Lee. Address, P.O. Box 54988, Irvine, California. I noted that this phone is a prepaid wireless plan and that the information that was provided by the user of the phone is false. As a result of this subpoena, I have not been able to develop any new leads in this case. A takeaway from this section of the report is the fact that even though the home invaders were using walkie-talkies during the robbery... Siniad was also communicating with someone on the phone. And from what a lot of the witnesses stated, the walkie-talkies were actually Nextel cell phones. Which means a cell tower dump may have still been effective. Although the revelation that Mr. Anonymous Lee called the getaway driver wasn't a whole lot of help. As we dig deeper, we find that the attack in Kingwood did not occur by happenstance. The home invasion was planned out days in advance. This is a transcript from text messages pulled from Siniad's phone. From the report. The below messages are all incoming messages from Yosista's number. February 25th, 3.01 a.m. You remember the Cadillac says Texas-style limousine. Good, it's here at 59 and Tidwell. And here you saw the Cadillac, the same one and the other black one. Then at 3.05 a.m. on the 25th. They are not entering. The limos. I want to go see the house. Then at 3.09 a.m. on the 25th. There is the business of Texas style. Then at 3.11. I think if it goes, so-so, I'm getting drowsy. At 3.16 a.m. I'm going fast to see if the cab is alone. I will text slash call you and come by and pick you up from here. Sinead responds, all right. Then at 9.27 a.m., When you have a chance, call me. 
so I can explain the story. And then at 8.20 p.m. on the night of the robbery. I tell you right now, I'll check. Then it's noted at the bottom of the report. The robbery occurs during the hours from 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. on February 26th. About four and a half hours after that last text message. It sounds like Sinead and her crew were planning to do the home invasion the night before, but Yasistas wanted to check out the house before they executed the plan. And he or she was getting drowsy. And at this point in the investigation, Sinead had been arrested, but she isn't giving up the other men involved in the robbery. She tells police that Yasistas is really a construction worker named Juan. But that information doesn't seem to be accurate either. From the report. Suspect Gonzalez stated on Sunday morning around 2 a.m. she was at home with her husband when she received a call from her friend Juan asking for her to pick him up. Gonzalez stated that she met Juan at Club Metropolis three months prior to this incident and did not know his last name. Gonzalez described Juan as a 30-year-old construction worker, 5'10", 250 pounds. And as a side note, I'm pretty sure no one's buying the fact that a man who she barely knows that she met at a club calls her at 2 a.m. while she's sitting at home with her husband, and she jumps to go pick him up. Seems unlikely. Now back to the report. Gonzalez stated that Juan told her he had to pick something up from a house and needed her to pick him up from the location. Gonzalez stated that she remembers exiting 59N at Kingwood Drive. She stated when she arrived at the house, she saw Juan carrying a couple of bags. Gonzalez stated she did not see anything or anyone else. Gonzalez stated that she picked up Juan and drove him to 45N and Ritchie Road to an unknown apartment complex where he exited the car. She stated that she started to drive home when two cars ran her off the road. Gonzalez stated that the men got out of the car with guns and told her she had just robbed them in their house. Gonzalez stated that the men found their stolen property in the trunk of the car, iPod, and in the front seat, gun. Although Gonzalez appeared to be very upset, I observed her to be evasive in questioning. I questioned her about the identity of Juan. Gonzalez stated she did not know anything else. When I questioned Gonzalez about how I could find Juan, she mentioned he had called her on her phone. I questioned Gonzalez about what name Juan would be listed in her phone, and Gonzalez avoided answering the question. After continuing to question Gonzalez about the phone, Gonzalez stated Juan would be the last number called in her phone, and he would be listed as, quote, why something, end quote. No mention of Oscar Garcia at this point, and also no mention of Siniad's husband. Isabel told me that the police told her that Siniad's husband had jumped off a balcony and ran away when they tried to interview him but then later cleared him. Although there is nothing in this file to indicate that her husband was ever even looked into, which is a shame because remember the 2009 home invasion, the witnesses stated that one of the offenders spoke clear English. And in my letter from Oscar, he says that Sinead's husband was involved in the Kingwood home invasion. And he claims that he had the text messages to prove it. The police were hitting a dead end in their investigation, so they tapped some partners from the FBI for help. From the report. Stormsky spoke to Breeden and was advised that these suspects may be Hispanic, possibly Colombian, El Salvadorian, or another Hispanic group. Stormsky offered to assist in the case along with Special Agent R. Oliver. Both officers have contact with confidential informants that are into the Colombian community and could search for information on the case. According to the report, the Colombian CIs never turned up anything for the investigation. 
Luckily, a year and a half later, days before Sinead was scheduled for trial, a tip came in. On May 8, 2013, I, Senior Police Officer Jeff Breeden, received a phone call from Assistant District Attorney Adam Muldrow, who informed me that he received information that a male by the name of Oscar Garcia was one of the suspects in this home invasion. The report never says who called in the tip, although the only witness on the state's list for Oscar's trial was Sinead Gonzalez. And this is where things get really interesting. In the Brady materials turned over to the defense in Oscar's case, it states that Sinead gave a statement implicating Oscar and also that she picked him out of a photo lineup. But there's not one mention, not one supplement, transcript, or report in this file that Sinead had any involvement in Oscar's arrest. All we have is the bench warrant that shows that she was brought from prison to Harris County to testify and the Brady materials. Speaking of the Brady materials, we find another twist in that story as well. As we remember, Isabel told me that she and her husband positively identified, quote, the wrong guy in the photo lineup. The Brady materials turned over in Discovery make no mention of them even seeing the photo lineup. And in the police report, it says that Mr. and Mrs. Isabel looked at the photo lineup but couldn't identify anyone because too much time had passed. And Isabel says that's not true. Nonetheless, Oscar was arrested on November 14th of 2013. And his arrest was a shit show in and of itself. When police arrived at Oscar's residence, there were already U.S. Marshals at that location, seemingly staking out Garcia and his friends. Oscar was spotted in the parking lot with a group of men. When the decision was made to move in, Oscar took off back into the house. From the report. The U.S. Marshals made the decision to move in and block the suspect Garcia's car in the driveway. As we were moving up to the residence, the four males that had just arrived jumped out of the vehicle they arrived in and ran. All four were caught rather quickly. ICE agents on the scene took custody of the following four males that ran and were caught. And it lists the four names. At that time, suspect Garcia exited the black car in the driveway, leaving it running and the driver's door open and quickly re-entered the residence. A perimeter was quickly established around the residence. As we moved up the driveway toward the front of the residence, I made way around the driver's side of the black car, making sure there was no other people inside. As I approached the open driver's door, I immediately saw a silver semi-auto handgun with black grips laying on the driver's side floor. I unloaded the gun and made it safe. The gun was later handed over to Senior Officer C. James, who tagged the gun into the property room under the authority of Sergeant Carr, assigned to the Homicide Division. U.S. Marshals started knocking and announcing at the front door of the residence and did not receive any response. After several minutes of knocking and announcing, the U.S. Marshals forced entry into the front door of the residence. A female approached the door later identified as Monica, the mother of suspect Garcia. The U.S. Marshals asked her if Oscar Garcia was inside the residence and she said in Spanish, that is my son and he is not inside. After a thorough search, which lasted over two hours, suspect Garcia was found in the attic. Given the fact that the door and ladder for the attic can only be operated from outside of the attic, the only way suspect Garcia could have entered the attic to hide was with the help of his mother, who was the only other person in the house at the time the suspect Garcia went back into the residence when we arrived. I contacted the Harris County District Attorney's Office and presented these facts to ADA Martinez, who accepted the charges of hindering apprehension on Monica. ICE agents on the scene determined that Monica was in the U.S. illegally and took custody of her as well. 
Suspect Garcia was directly booked into the Harris County Jail by the U.S. Marshals. This case just becomes more and more strange the closer I look at it. Colombian criminal informants, undocumented immigrants hiding in attics, and a star witness left completely out of the state's file. It's all very strange. And that's not to mention that after Oscar pled down his charge and was convicted, the state filed a motion to destroy all of the evidence in the case. From what I'm told, that's not entirely uncommon after a guilty plea, but this case was still open. Only two out of the six suspects were actually caught. And now we may never know who else was involved. At least not from the police file. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So, how does all of this relate to the Melgar case? To begin with, Oscar is ready to talk. I don't know yet if he has any information on Jim's murder, but if he does, I think it's possible that we can draw it out of him. He's been very forthcoming so far. And even if Oscar doesn't personally have knowledge of Jim's murder, I'm hoping that he can share the names of the people that he mentioned in his letter to the judge. That would be a good place to start and a lead that could have been followed up on if Curazal had considered looking into crimes with similar M.O.s, rather than focusing only on Sandy. That's obviously not the only ball that was dropped by Curazal during his investigation of Jim's murder. One that is now glaringly obvious is the fact that in the canvas of the Melgar's neighborhood, only six doors were knocked on. Two of the houses were vacant, and at one there was no answer. In this thorough investigation of Jim's murder... Only three families in the neighborhood were spoken to by police, and not one of those houses were located between Jim and Sandy's house in the end of the cul-de-sac. All of them were on the west side of their home. And this is where the video surveillance footage comes into play. Regardless of what we're specifically seeing in these videos... I think that we can all agree that there was activity on this quiet street around the time that Jim was murdered. At 11.55, we see reflections that seem to indicate that headlights are approaching, and then they disappear. At midnight, and again at 12.04, we see some sort of light showing up on the window of the truck in the Esmond's driveway. At 12.05, a car either pulls into the Melgar's driveway, or it drives by with its lights off or dimmed. At 12.32, a car drives down toward the end of the cul-de-sac, And then two minutes later, another vehicle, very possibly the same vehicle, drives back past the driveway in the other direction. Knowing all of this, it should have been absolutely imperative that the police spoke with every single residence between the Melgar's house and the cul-de-sac. It's also possible that some of those homes had surveillance videos, but the police never even checked. 
After Sinead was arrested for the Kingwood home invasion, police interviewed another witness from their neighborhood. And have a listen to what he had to say. His name is Kyle. Kyle is the son of the reportee. Kyle saw the black two-door BMW drive to the end of the cul-de-sac and drive off on February 26 at 12.33 a.m. In the Kingwood home invasion, Sinead was spotted driving past the house to the cul-de-sac, turning around and driving away 30 minutes before Isabel's husband returned from work and was jumped outside his house. Since she was seen with the other offenders in her car after they made their escape, I think it's a fair assumption that her trip down to the cul-de-sac and return trip past the victim's house was when she dropped off the actual home invaders. And in Jim's case, at the same time, between 12.32 and 12.34 a.m., literally the exact same time, we see what looks like a car driving past the Melgar's house towards the cul-de-sac, then turning around and driving back the other direction. Even if you believe that Sandy Melgar is guilty of killing her husband, you have to at least consider the fact that if this was in fact a home invasion gone wrong, every single aspect of the crime, all of the available evidence lines up with the Kingwood home invasion that was carried out in the exact same way. And sure, maybe that's just a coincidence, but maybe it's not. In both the Kingwood case and the 2009 home invasion, the offenders were dropped off outside the house and approached on foot. In the 2009 case, the police were notified quickly and the offenders had to flee on foot through the backyard. But in the Kingwood case, the police weren't notified until after the home invaders were gone. In that instance, once the crew inside was ready to leave, they radioed their getaway drivers to come back and pick them up. In the Melgar case, I think there may be evidence in that surveillance footage of exactly that happening. At 1.13 a.m., when a car, in my humble opinion, backs out of their driveway with their lights off and drives away. In the surveillance video, at 1.13 a.m., we see lights come into frame that do not appear to have come from either direction. They look to me to come from across the street from Jim and Sandy's driveway. The lights appear to swing out onto the road towards the cul-de-sac and then abruptly shut off. At the risk of overstepping my abilities again, I'll give you my analysis of this segment of the video. If you'd like to look for yourself, just pop onto our YouTube channel and look at the 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. video. Scroll to the 1.13 a.m. timestamp and check it out. What I see is a car with its headlights turned off backing out of the driveway. I think the lights we're seeing are the reverse lights on the car. You can't turn those off. They light up when the car is put into reverse. Once the car gets out into the street and shifts into drive, the lights immediately shut off and the car drives away, out of the neighborhood. In this theoretical scenario, we wouldn't see the car pulling in because their lights are off. And so are the reverse lights, since the car is moving forward when it arrives. I realize that this could be explained by some as Sandy leaving the crime scene. But as I mentioned last week, I find that hard to believe. To begin with, the narrative of the state and the supporters of the conviction is that nothing was missing from the house. So what exactly would she be leaving with? Also, as I mentioned, 
If she was going to remove items from the house, why on God's green earth would she leave the murder weapon, towels, and a shirt behind? There's no reasonable explanation for that. The only reasonable assertion that I can come to explaining the 1.13 a.m. event is that we are seeing the getaway driver backing out of the driveway after the murder took place. However, I will caution you to take my analysis with a grain of salt. I want to be clear that I'm very far from an expert in photogrammetry. But Grant Fredericks is an expert. And hopefully by next week, we'll have his opinion. Before I end today's episode, I want to honor Jim Melgar's memory by wishing all of you fathers out there a happy Father's Day. One thing that we can all agree on and know for sure is that on December 22, 2012, a great man senselessly lost his life. May we never forget the memory and legacy of Jim Melgar. Happy Father's Day. and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.